Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Afro Mayo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Afro Mayo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swarbrick and with me this afternoon I have Mike Stark, whose 3.8 litre Busso engined 156 hill climb car made such a big impression with members at National Alpha Day and on the club stand at the NEC. Good afternoon, Mike. Good afternoon, Guy. So we met at the NEC Classic Car Show and we corresponded by email about something completely different, GTA anniversary for next year. Yeah, that's right. But you were there with your amazing 156 GTA hill climb car. Tell us a little bit about your background and how, how you came to, I guess, how you came to be on the stand at the NEC ultimately, but, <laughs> but you know, the, the story of, of your career and that car. Okay, well, no problem, guy. So, I mean, I guess it's a it's a, it's a relatively long story, but I'll try and keep it brief. I mean, I've been involved in motorsport all my life and uh, have participated in many different forms of motorsport. Uh, when I was growing up as a teenager, my father actually raced powerboats, uh, circuit boats, as opposed to offshore racing. So this is a sort of lakes, rivers, Dockland course stuff. And I started that as soon as I could when I was old enough back in the uh, back in the mid 80s and uh, raced circuit powerboats uh, for about 15 years all over all over Europe luckily i was fortunate enough to after a few years sign for a dutch team and raced with them all, all over all over europe as i say uh, for throughout the sort of late 80s and, and early 90s and most of the 90s in 1999 i stopped powerboat racing partly because i had a young family but also partly because there was a, a, a large number of bad accidents including some fatalities of friends of mine and having had a young family at the time decided it was probably wise to to, to, to stop that and move on and do something else and then during the course of the sort of noughties if you like i uh, raced a variety of different things ranging from quad bikes to uh, would you believe it lawnmowers <laughs> and actually competed many times some of some of the listeners might be aware of the rather well-known 12 hours of whisper green lawnmower race i actually competed in that many times and as a, a slight aside uh, actually competed under the name of alpha Ramoo racing <laughs> a few times and that was because uh, one of my co-drivers was actually ed mcdonough who i had got to know by that stage and uh, he joined us as one of the one of the drivers in the team for the 12-hour race uh, hence the rather comical name of alpha Ramoo <laughs> racing because uh, most teams had to enter under under silly names and then in um my sort of interest First in involvement in sprints and hill climbs came about in 2010 uh, when I just happened to notice uh, that the Alpha Romeo Owners Club started their own sprint series that year. And I went along, uh, we had a 147 Ducati course uh, road car at the time. It's actually my wife's car. And um, I As went along. allegedly featured in the latest James Bond film, apparently. Oh, is that right? Yeah, apparently, okay. apparently there's a Ducati Corsa in the background somewhere. Okay. <laughs> oh, I, I should have held on to it. It might be worth more these days. <laughs> Um, so uh, yeah, I went along to uh, to one of the Arock Sprint Series events and, and loved it. Um, and uh, yeah, competed in that in uh, in 2010 and 2011. And then that came to an end in, at the end of 2011. And uh, I'd met some really great people during that series. And a few of us wanted to carry on doing sprints and hill climbs and decided we'd sort of carry on together. And so uh, decided we'd join a sort of, if you like, another series, but a series obviously that's uh, if you're way beyond just alphas competing against all makes and models of cars. And that's what we did. We went and, and ultimately joined the BARC, the British Automobile Racing Club Speed Championship, and uh, competed in that for many years in my uh, 147 Ducati course, or should I say my wife's 147 Ducati course, and thoroughly enjoyed that and you know, had some good results. Obviously, I was competing in the road-going classes, so I was up against 
if you like, similar road-going cars off similar power. So a lot of Renault Clios, Toyota R2s, Mazda MX-5s, those sorts of cars I was up against in the road-going classes. And are the road-going classes completely unmodified or are you allowed a little bit yeah, of... there's a couple of modifications you're allowed to do in the road-going classes, which are you can obviously change the brakes, pads and discs, and you can change the springs and dampers, but you can't move the position of them, so you right. can't change the mounting points. But you can put on um, uprated springs and dampers, and you can put on better pads and discs, and that's pretty much it. If you want to, you can install a roll cage for safety reasons, but you don't have to. If you want to, you can put in a race seat, again, for safety reasons, or save a little bit of weight, but you don't have to. Uh, so the majority of people compete in road-going classes in a, in a pretty much uh, you know, bog-standard uh, road-going way. Yeah. And then I really enjoyed competing in the road going category. And my car at the time, uh, I was getting it looked after by uh, Ned Kirkham and his team of technicians at Autoluso at Houghton Regis. And, uh, you know, got to know Ned well, got to know the team there well, and hatched a plan sometime, must have been around about 2014, 2015, to see what, how far we could go with building a, a, a real out and out modified alpha competition car, specifically looking at the hill climbs as opposed to the circuit sprint, where with the hill climbs, you know, it's all about acceleration. It's all about torque from the engine. It's all about lightweight cars because you want to get offline quickly. You want to get out of the tight bends quickly. It's all about acceleration and not so much about top speed. So looking to build something that was very light, but with a lot of torque from the engine and also running with a sequential gearbox. So, you know, we'd be able to get that acceleration running with super soft tires and everything we could do really to, you know, to get the car off the line and out the corners as quickly as we could. And, you know, we, we came up with a plan of, of, of using a 156 GTA as a sort of donor shell to build the car and go with a 3.8 litre V6 Busso engine uh, to get the torque. And Quaif kindly agreed, well, Ned persuaded them to to, uh, to build me a, a sequential gearbox with, you know, the straight cut gears, uh, so sort of very low ratios. And, uh, and that was really, you know, where we started with that idea. And then, you know, basically started the build and took us, you know, a good few years to build the car, took it step by step, started off with the shell, did everything we could to, you know, get it as light and uh, as stiff as we could, because again, with the hill climbs for the People who've been to hill climbs will know that, you know, there are some pretty twisty bends on some of these places. And, uh, you know, you, you need to keep the car uh, nice and flat to get around the corners as quick as you can and then get out of the corners and get on the power. You know, you don't want the weight transferring and the car rolling and things like that. So, um, you know, we spent a lot of time getting the shell right and then gradually built up the mechanicals and then started, got, got the car running in 2017 and then started competing in, in it in earnest in, in 2018. And, uh, you know, I've just completed my, what's that, fourth year, fourth season now in the car and, uh, you know, uh, loving every minute of it. It's a, it's a bit of a beast to drive, to be honest. It's a little bit of a, an attack on the senses, but, you know, the acceleration's a bit brutal. But uh, I think I've just about got used to it now. The first year or two was a little bit overwhelming, but I think I've got used to it now. And, uh, yeah, we're loving every minute of it, getting some good results and, uh, and, and really enjoying it. We'll come back to that just in a second. But the car itself has a bit of a history, doesn't it? It does. Well, the, the shell of the car, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is, the, uh, it is the, one of the original press launch cars from the 2002 launch of the 156 GTA in the UK. There was a press launch media event up in uh, the north of Scotland. And the, the car that was used for a lot of the magazine adverts and actually the press photos was uh, a car with the registration REO2 EJY. And uh, it was obviously a red 156 GTA at the time. And that was the, 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 if you like, the car that we've used as the donor shell. Actually, Autoluso got it back, I think, 2014 time. It obviously, since the press launch had been in a 
been been in private hands, but it had been involved in a pretty minor accident. But the insurance company had declared it a write-off and Autoloser had it for breaking. But the shell was in perfect condition. A little bit of rust, but nothing major. And as we were going to get it acid dipped anyway, once we'd stripped it, we weren't too worried about that. So yeah, that was the, so the shell uh, of the car was actually one of the original press launch cars, which is why we actually run with the number plate on, yeah, just so we can sort of demonstrate it. Because it's not obviously the car's not road legal, but we keep the number plate on just to uh, just to demonstrate that. Brilliant. So, 2018, you started competing. How's the the performance of the car progressed, and 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 what developments have there been since? Mark one, if you like. Well, what we've done over time is is try to make steady improvements, you know, one thing at a time, rather than sort of just chucking lots of things at it and not really working out what's making a difference. So we've tended to do one or two things every winter to try to develop the car. I think the, the biggest change probably uh, since we actually built the car to actually its development is the addition of a flat shifter. So a couple of seasons ago, we put uh, a Jura shift flat shifter added it to the sequential gearbox. So not if you've got the advantage of a sequential box with very quick gear changes and obviously no real chance of missing a gear, which you do with a conventional gearbox. But with the flat shifter, obviously I'm keeping my foot, my, my, my right foot buried on the throttle uh, on the upshifts and not have, even having to use the clutch. And that does make, uh, I was actually surprised the scale of difference it makes. Just as a, as a comparison, just before fitting flat shifter, we did a sprint event at Castle Coombe perfectly dry conditions. Shortly after fitting it, I did another sprint event at Castle Coombe. Again, it's the very same conditions, and I was two seconds a lap quicker. And that was the only change we made. So I think that does show quite a significant advantage and performance gain by you know not having to back off when you, when you, when you change gears and dip the clutch. So we talked about that at the NEC. There are, there are some downsides to the flat shifter as well, aren't there? Oh, yeah, there are. I mean, it, you do have to adapt your driving a little bit because... To start with, I was just keeping my foot buried and pretty much running the car on the rev limiter, which, as I found out, the head gaskets don't like. <laughs> so it does tend to, if you drive like that, i.e. badly, then, yeah, you will just chew up head gaskets. Uh, so you do have to adapt, adapt your driving a little bit and not just bounce it off the rev limiter the whole time, even though obviously it's very tempting when you're, when you're, you know, you're on the final run of a day you're half a second behind the class leader and you're trying to get a win, obviously it's tempting to just keep your foot buried and just think to hell with it. But but yeah, that doesn't help with the reliability very much. So yeah, what I tend to do now is I tend to not use the flat shifter in practice runs, tend to use it just in the competition runs. And particularly, you know, when I... I'm chasing a particular time when I know I've got to go a little bit quicker to, you know, get a class win or achieve a particular time. I'll, I'll, I'll do it then. So I have yeah. to use it a bit more sparingly. And other developments? Well, I, th- I think that, to be honest, the main development really, I think, has been my driving. As I said, you know, a few minutes ago, when I first drove the car, having been used to, you know, a 147 Ducati course road car, which was a great car to drive, superb track car, great fun, really enjoyed it, and still a quick car. The, the, you know, the highly modified 156 GTA is a completely different, completely different animal. And animal is probably the right word. I mean, it really, <laughs> the first few times I drove it, I'm like, wow, this is, you know, this is pretty, uh, pretty bonkers. And, uh, and, you know, when you're doing it on a, a wide test track, it's one thing. When you're doing it on a tight, twisty hill climb and, you know, the, the power you've got, the torque you've got, the grip level you've got. I mean, it's, I think it's true to say the, certainly the first year or so the car was quicker than me. So I think the biggest thing has been me learning how to drive it, you know, quickly on the limit, particularly bearing in mind that, you know, with sprints and hill climbs for people who know about this 
part of motor this, this discipline of motorsport you don't get you know a warm-up run <laughs> you know you you come out of the paddock and you line up and you've got to you know you've got to go for it off the line so you don't get a warm-up lap you don't get a 10 minute qualifying or practice session at the beginning you get a couple of practice runs and that's your lot yeah so um you know you do have to get used to be able to drive car you know get in it and drive it quickly you know on cold tires cold brakes from the word go and i that was a bit easier let's be honest with the with the with the 147 than it was with this car so i think my driving has been the biggest development really is is, is learning how to drive this car and how to drive it quickly just for those of us who aren't big hill climb aficionados talk talk us through a meeting what what's the what's the format through to the the kind of final run of the day yeah so what 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 normally happens is on a one day meeting you would normally have a couple of practice runs in the morning and then you'd probably have time permitting if there haven't been any major incidents or accidents which has meant you know, there's been a delay. You probably get a timed run, your first competition run just before the lunch break. You then get a lunch break uh, and then, you know, largely for the marshals, the, the hardworking marshals to give them an opportunity to uh, to get some lunch and get fed. And then you normally get one, probably two competition runs after lunch. So you'd always get four runs in a day, sometimes five, sometimes even more. It depends a lot on the venue and on the meeting itself. Some venues lend themselves better to keeping the cars, if you like, going all the time. So venues like Prescott and Harewood, where they've got return roads, so they don't have to send cars up in batches and then yeah. wait, close the course, bring them all down again, where they're obviously like places like Shelsley Walsh and Gersten Down, where they have to do that. And obviously they lose 10, 15 minutes every hour or so when they're doing that, understandably. Other venues, they can just keep the cars running and as long as there's no major incidents. And what I also tend to find, and hopefully there's no hill climbing single-seater drivers listening who are going to take offense at this, what I tend to find is if a meeting has a lot of single-seaters, there's often a lot of delays because they tend to like throwing themselves off into the scenery quite a bit and uh, getting recovered. And obviously all that, the red flags come out and that takes 20 minutes to get the car back and fix the barriers. Whereas if there tends to be not many single-seaters at a meeting, things tend to run a bit smoother and you tend to get more runs. So you know, during the course of a day, as I say, you'd get a one-day meeting, minimum four runs. It's, often five, sometimes six or seven, depending. And then the, the culmination is that the fastest timed run, so the fastest competition run, uh, is, is taken into your into account in terms of the results. Yeah. So, you know, whatever class you're in, at the moment with the 156 GTA, I'm in the over two litre modified class. You know, there could be you know, probably an average of eight, nine, 10 cars in that class at a meeting. And obviously everybody's fastest competition run is is taken into account. And then that gives you the order for the, for the final results. So it's, it's one of those sports where, you know, until the final run's completed, you don't know where you're going to finish. You know, it, it, you could be leading and then somebody who hasn't done as, as well or had perhaps mechanical problems during the day, puts in a blistering last run. Or equally, you, you could do it the, the other way around and you could, you know, you could be not doing very well and then hook it all together on the last run, get the setup right, you drive it well and, you know, you, you win it on the last run. So uh, a little bit different to racing there because obviously with racing, you tend to know, you know, entering the last lap, you know, you tend to know roughly what the result's going to be. Uh, whereas obviously with, with the hill clubs and sprints, it, you know, you could, it could all change on the last run. And, and, and what's the, the deal with the, the runoffs? All oh, right. Well, so the runoffs are um, generally the the runoffs are just the domain of the single seaters, right? And at the big hill climb events, so British hill climb championship events or Midland hill climb championship events, they have a top twelve runoff at the end of the meeting for the fastest twelve cars, and invariably they will always be you know the big single seaters, unless it's been uh, odd weather conditions where you know perhaps some of the you know, faster modified saloon and sports cars have run in a dry 
conditions and the big single seaters run in wet conditions. So you occasionally, with mixed weather conditions, you might get a bit of an odd look to the runoff. But assuming it's just been the same weather throughout the day, invariably it'll be the domain of the, the fastest 12 single seaters. They'll then do a runoff and that will then determine the points. The results of the runoff will then determine the points in their championship. So be it the British Hill Climb Championship or the Middle Hill Climb Championship or whatever. However, What's been interesting is a few venues, particularly Chelsea Walsh, have over the past few years made added a bit of interest to a lot of meetings by doing top 10 runoffs at the end of the meetings, but for specific categories of cars. So rather than just saying it's the fastest 10, they've actually said it's the fastest 10 and then select what it's the fastest 10 of. So I was fortunate enough to qualify for a runoff at Chelsea Walsh this year when they said it was going to be the fastest 10 closed cars. So basically cars with solid roofs. So it was a meeting there in uh, July. There was about 130 cars in total. Only about 15 or 20 of them were single seaters. There was a few sort of open sports cars like Radicals and things like that. But probably 70, 80 cars there were closed saloon cars, be they road cars or modified cars like mine. And they said, you know, we're going to do the top 10 runoff to add a bit of interest as the fastest 10 closed cars. And yeah, it was great to have an opportunity to, to qualify for a runoff um, at a place like Chelsea Walsh. Unfortunately, it was late on a Sunday afternoon. So by the time I got to run, I think everyone had gone home. So, <laughs> so there weren't many people watching. But nonetheless, it was, it's one of those things that it's nice to be able to say you've, you've, you've done it. And I think it's, it, it adds, to be fair, Guy, I think it adds uh, a lot of more interest for other competitors because, you know, normally, other than the top 15, 20 single-seater drivers, nobody's in with a chance of getting into a runoff. And I think now they're saying it's the top 10, could be closed cars. They've done it where it's the top 10 members of a particular club. Talking to to, to, to one of the organizers, actually, at the Classic Motor Show, they were, th- they were saying they're thinking of about doing things like a top 10 runoff for people under a certain age or people <laughs> over a certain age. So it just adds adds a bit of variety yeah. and a bit of interest, I think, for the for the competitors and people who normally wouldn't ever think of getting into a runoff having a, having an opportunity to do, to do so. And, and just to put your runoff in, into perspective, um, we talked about Ed McDonough earlier on. Ed wrote an article in the magazine you know, two issues ago uh, uh, about that runoff. And I think Ed's worked out that that was the... I think I'm right in saying the fastest time in an Alfa Romeo in a runoff at Chelsea Wall. Well, it, yeah, it was at that time. So uh, first, the, 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 I think the main thing that we uh, that Ed spotted was that it was the first time an Alfa Romeo had qualified for a runoff at any British hill climb venue since 1952. <laughs> and back in the late 40s and early 50s, the famous Dennis Poor competed in a, an ex-Alfa Grand Prix car in the British Hill Climb Championship and actually won the British Hill Climb Championship in 1950 in the car. And he last qualified for a runoff in 1952. And as far as uh, Ed was able to determine, the no alpha has ever qualified for a runoff as a, as a UK hill climb since then until I did it in July of this year at Chelsea Walsh. So that was quite a nice achievement. It was also at the time, again, as far as he was able to ascertain, the fastest Alpha ever up, Chelsea Walsh. Although, uh, unfortunately, I think at the following meeting, uh, another driver in an Alpha 4C actually went slightly quicker than me. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't think I can claim to be the fastest Alpha up Chelsea Walsh anymore. I'll have to go back next year and try and take that one back. But, but certainly in terms of getting an Alpha into a, a runoff at a British Hill Climb event, certainly it was the first one to do that in the best part of 70 years. And you know, I'm not quite sure where the next one will be. Hopefully it'll be me again. <laughs> Yeah, brilliant. What what are the plans to to develop this car further, or is it is it more about you you continuing to learn the car and the the hills? Um, a, a bit of both. We have got some plans to develop the car. I mean, at the moment, I still run the car on regular 
if you like pump fuel, I run it on, you know, V power. I do want to get it to run on race fuel, but it will need to be remapped for that. So that's really the main development for, for this winter. I do, uh, you know, there's certainly some some power and probably some reliability benefits to be gained by running it on, on you know, 103, 104 octane race fuel. But obviously it does need to be remapped for that. So that's certainly certainly on the list. There's also a few things that, again, whilst the car is, is already very light, I mean, it's under a ton in weight, which for a 156 GTA is for those aficionados who know how much a 156 GTA weighs is about half a ton lighter than the original. So obviously we've already shaved an awful lot of weight off it, but there's some further weight saving we can do. For example, I'm still running a standard fuel tank and a couple of, obviously the fact that although it's very thirsty, the car, would you believe uh, when at racing speed, I'm averaging three miles a gallon. So it's not a particularly economical car from an MPG point of view. Uh, I can obviously run a much smaller fuel tank and a much lighter fuel tank because um, you're not doing many miles I'm not doing many miles no I mean an average hill climb run is probably somewhere in the region about 40 to 50 seconds so so yeah so so yeah there's a bit of weight save further weight sort of saving and weight improvement we can make and then as you say my driving as well and just getting more experience in the car and getting more experience at certain venues I mean one of the things that you find with hill climbing is there's uh, a number of championships where you go around different hill climb venues around the country and compete perhaps once or twice a year but also most venues have their own local championship and you know what you see when you turn up at places like Harewood or Gersten Down Lowton Park places like that are the local drivers those who compete in the local championship and to do every event there really know the course you know like the back of their hand yeah and whilst i don't know i'm ever going to you know ever going to just stick with one venue i, I like going to different venues and, and, and trying different courses clearly intimate knowledge of a of, of a hill climb course you know is worth a lot in terms of time so um, there's two or three venues i'm going to concentrate on a little bit more going forward and try and do a few more events there during the course of the season because i think that will really help me in my driving of the car and getting the most out of it and really getting it down to times that it's capable of because at the moment i think you know we've got some pretty quick times at most of the main hill climb venues you know we're down in the 35 seconds at uh Shelsley walsh i'm in the 37 seconds at gerson down uh 66 harewood but there's probably a few a couple more seconds i reckon at all of those venues which if i just you know not only develop the car a little bit more but also you know improve my driving and knowledge of the courses a little bit more than I think that that time can come. So I, I'm sure anybody who's listened to this podcast so far will, yeah, it's clear your enthusiasm for hill climbing. And I have personal experience of, you know, spending 10 minutes with you and, and you trying to get me in a car. So uh, <laughs> I, I think, think if I remember rightly, you said you were definitely going to do it next year. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think I, I think I did say that. Uh, I haven't had that conversation with Mrs. Scorbrick yet. So, so assuming that I was going to do that, what what's actually involved? You know, starting with a, a a road car, what would your advice be to somebody who wanted to to give it a go? I think the, the, the first thing to do is 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 just you know accept you're going to do it and uh, give it a go. It's 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 very easy to do. You know, there is not a lot of sort of administration, testing, car development, all those sorts of things that there would be with racing. So, just to give a very quick summary, you need to get yourself uh, a Motorsport UK license. It used to be called a National B license, but I think it's now called a RS Interclub license. Uh, So that enables you to do club level sprints and hill climbs. There's no medical involved for that. You just do a self de- self declaration on the medical side. Uh, it's about 40, 45 pounds for one of those licenses for a season. So they're not particularly expensive. And that entitles the driver to take part, as I say, in the vast majority of sprints and hill climbs, because most of them are inter-club status, uh, but the national ones. Uh, so if you want to take part in a British Hill Climb Championship event or something like that, obviously you'd need to have a national level license. But 
to get that, you'd need a number. You need to get an interclub license and then get a number of signatures to say you've competed there successfully, and that before you get the national one. But you can still do the majority of events on an interclub license, and then it's just a question of the car. And I mean, any car will do. I mean, it, you know, for people who've been to hill climbs, I'm sure they'll testify that, as well as the fact that you've got some amazingly powerful, you know, single seaters and sports cars taking part, you've also got people in their road going you know, Fiat Punto uh, and all those sorts of things, having just as much fun and spending a lot less money, to be honest. So any car will do, you know, any road going car, you don't need to make any modifications whatsoever. As we said earlier, there are a few simple modifications, basic ones you can do if you want to, but you don't have to. And certainly I wouldn't suggest anybody does that to start with. I mean, uh, the first thing to do is see if you like the sport first, do a few events, see if you like it. And if you do, and then want to develop the car a little bit more, then great. But I wouldn't do that to start with because you might not like it. Yeah. So I'll just decide what events you want to do. You need to be a member of a, a Motorsport UK registered club. But fortunately, the Alfa Romeo Owners Club is such a club. So you, being an AROC member uh, is fine. And then it's just a question of, you know, what events do you want to do? Uh, and making sure that, you know, you're either AROC is an invited club to that event or you're registered with a particular championship that is invited to that event. It's, it's, but there's plenty of events you can do that, that, that are open to people who are members of such a club or registered with a particular championship. I mean, as I say, I register with the BARC championship every year. It costs £30 to register for that championship and it entitles you to 20, 25 different events all over the country during the course of a of, of season. And then get yourself signed up you know, and go and do the event. That's all you need to do. The only thing you'll need to do to the car is put a little timing strut on the front. For those of you who haven't seen a hill climb event or a sprint event, you have to have a little black sort of rectangle on the front of the car, but it can be held on with a bit of tape, to be honest. I mean, you know, most people tend to screw them onto where the number plate is. Uh, it's just to cut the timing beam at the start and finish of the, uh, of the run. Uh, and that's all you really need to do to the car. And other than that, it's go and enjoy yourself and learn. My only other advice would be it might be a good idea to do a sprint first circuit sprint before doing a hill climb circuit sprints will basically run on the same principle as a hill climb in terms of timed events where competitors are going one at a time so you're not you know at risk of having you know getting involved in somebody else's accident as you are with circuit racing or track days so circuit sprints you're as i say going one at a time but uh, at least with those you do have a bit of runoff so if you do get a get it wrong or make a mistake then you know it's probably nothing bad's going to happen with a hill climb. There's most of them have very little runoff in some cases, no runoff whatsoever. So, you know, if you go offline, you hit something solid. Whereas obviously with a sprint event at a race circuit or a permanent sprint venue, somewhere like Kerbera's quite a well-known sprint venue, you get a bit of runoff and the track's a bit wider anyway. So yeah. if you do get a line wrong or just miss a breaking point, chances are you're just going to lose a few seconds on your run. You're not going to, and at worst, you might go off onto a bit of grass, but that's the worst that's going to happen. So probably the first event or two do a, do a, do a sprint yeah there are, there are some, some pretty solid fences and a big ditch at Kerbera from, from recollection but I think you have to you have to work quite hard to find them there, there are but I mean compared, yeah compared to a hill climb if you go to somewhere like Shelsey Walsh or Harewood or, or, or somewhere like that you know Wiscombe Park, places like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, most of the time, if you go off, you know, the tracks are narrow. And if you go off, you know, you are going to hit something pretty solid. So, uh, yeah, it might be a good idea just to do a few circuit sprints first, just so you're, you know, comfortable driving the car at speed. And obviously, with most modern race circuits now, you know, where they, they do a lot of sprints at places like Castlecombe, Goodwoods, Stetterton, there's one at Cadwell Park early next year, places like that. You know, you do have a bit of bit of margin for error. And perfectly possible to drive there with all the stuff you need in the boot and drive home oh, again absolutely, afterwards. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I obviously trailer my car now to and from events, but all the time I was competing in the 147 Ducati course, always drove to and from the events. Um, yeah, you just need to, you know, get a lunch in the boot, but you, you need to have race overalls and a helmet. So obviously, you know, 
put those in the boot, make sure you've got your, your, your equipment, got your lunch, got, a, you know, uh, a few drinks. And that's about it, really. Just make sure you, you empty them when you get there. Don't want to run with all that rattling around in the back of the car. Yeah. And away you go. And, and presumably plan the fuel so you've got not quite enough to get home by the time you finish. So you could keep, yeah. keep the weight down as, as, as much as possible. I guess in a road car, it doesn't make that much difference. It doesn't. I mean, but yeah, I mean, there's, there are, you do see people who are taking it very seriously who, you know, run it on, with very little fuel and then fill up between runs. To be honest, I never bothered with that. I used to, you know, I used to, as long as I started the day with sort of quarter of a tank of fuel just over something like that, then, you know, you've got enough for all your runs and then, you know, probably enough to get, to a, fuel station. To get, to, to get a fuel station <laughs> on the way home, to be honest. Yeah. So I never, you know, I never bothered that much. I'm really not sure it makes, with a road car, it's going to make that much difference. And again, once you're starting and starting out, I mean, the, the main thing is just to, you know, enjoy it, uh, enjoy, you know, driving your car on, on track, driving your car on track in a way that, if you like, is sort of pure driving because unlike racing where you're obviously, your other cars around you. So, you know, whilst you're obviously driving fast and on the limit, you know, you're, you're having to drive in relation to other cars, you're trying to pass the car in front or, or, or prevent the car behind you from passing you. Whereas obviously when you're doing a, a hill climb or sprint event, you're just absolutely driving on the limit, trying to drive on the limit of the car. You don't have to worry about anything that's around you. It's about you know trying to get every single gear change, every single braking point, every single turning point, every apex, every you know acceleration point, trying to get them all perfect. And just enjoying that opportunity to drive your car in such a, if you like, pure form and in such a such a pure way and just enjoy it and then you know yeah when you get you realize you you do enjoy the sport and want to do more of it then yeah perhaps take it a bit more seriously in terms of you know what can i do to the car within the rules to to make me a bit quicker make me a bit more competitive yeah and run it with a bit less fuel or you know all that sort of thing um and you know getting a slightly better set of tires that you can you know because obviously you can there's different types of tires you can use um, you have to use road legal tires to run in the road going category but obviously some are better than others yeah so all those sorts of things but i wouldn't worry about those for your first few events to be honest i would just try and enjoy it and uh, you know learn and 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 also just get to meet some great people i mean it's a, it's, a, it's a really enjoyable sport from a social side you know in between your runs you just spend the days that to fly by because you're simply chatting to a lot of like-minded people you know about uh, about fast cars which is uh yes, well it's a nice way to spend the day and is there anything that might trip you up with a, a road car just thinking about the conversation we had about mine mine has a, a celtic tuning remap on it would that disqualify it as a standard road car um in, in some events and championships yes it would so you do have to check the regulations if you have done any modifications to your car then you do have to just check the regulations as to what you're allowed to do so you you know you might have to move into it sometimes people do get moved into another class yeah at events it's very very rare that you wouldn't be able to run that is extremely rare but Sometimes at events, you do see the scrutineers chatting to a particular driver and, and then they get moved into another class because of something on that car that means they don't comply with the particular regulations of that event. At the end of the day, if you've got a box standard road car and you've done nothing to it, then you're absolutely fine to be in road yeah. going. And I'll say, if you've done anything to the brakes and basic suspension changes to the springs and dampers, then you'll also be fine. Anything more than that, you would have to just read to make sure you've read the regs and possibly even have a word with the eligibility scrutineer just to say, well, I've got this or I've got that, then, you know, then they might want to move you to another class. To be honest, Guy, a lot of it will depend on, in a way, how competitive you are. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, often people are running in particularly sort of club level events. Nobody really minds that much. And, you know, unless you're, you know, winning the class by five seconds <laughs> and the people in second and third are getting a little bit upset with you, then it's very unlikely that they're even going to be that worried, to be honest, even if you've got something on the car that isn't quite 
in line with the regulations. I'm, I'm, I'm aware, you know, of many cases where they've just said to people, look, it's not, you shouldn't really have this aftermarket exhaust or you shouldn't really have this, but you're fine for today, you know, but if you could get it changed for next time or, you know, whatever it might be, or, yeah. you know, only run in these events or, or make sure you enter this class next time. So, so it'll be fine. I, I wouldn't get that to put you off. And I assume, you know, you, you can find a bit more time by by going to a, a kind of track day tire, a semi-slick, but road legal tire. But you, you're probably not going to wear a set of tires out over the course of a season, given the no. the amount of, of running you're going to do. So the, the running yeah. costs are, are pretty pretty low. Oh, yeah. In terms of tires, the there are, for those familiar with the the Motorsport UK yearbook, there are three categories of tyre, list 1A, list 1B, and list 1C. And 1A are basically, if you like, standard pattern tread road tyres. 1B are road legal track tyres. And then 1C are basically competition tyres that are not road legal. In the majority of events and championships, you have to run list 1A tyres right. if you're running road going. So yeah, you, you have to. So you'd run the same tyres as you would drive to an event you would run at the event with them on and drive home again. And, you know, if you're only doing, you know, perhaps five runs a day, you wouldn't be wearing them enough. I mean, I used to get at least a season, if not two seasons out of a set of tyres. And that was using the car during the week as well, as well as using it in events. And I used to run Richardson Pilots on my 147. They were list 1A tyres, good good tyres, but, you know, good road tyres as well. Handy, that's what I've got on the Giulietta, so... Oh, well, there you go. So, so yeah, you can, some championships uh, and venues and events do allow 1B tyres on in road going. So, again, it's a question of checking, you know, regulations. But to be honest, I'd never even bothered with 1B, even when I was competing in events that allowed them in road going. I just stuck with my 1As. And to be honest, I didn't really see a big difference, to be honest. And and pads and discs and brake fluid and that kind of thing? Yeah, you can, you can pads and discs and brake fluid, you can... Are free because they're pretty much disposable items anyway. So they're free. So yeah, I mean, get yourself a good set of brake pads and and a good um, good brake fluid is is important. I have had a dodgy journey home once from Landau in South Wales when I bored my brake. I was running standard brake brake fluid and was boiled it during the course of an event and had to drive home with <laughs> virtually no brake pedal at all, uh, which wasn't much fun. So uh, yeah, I mean, I use uh, racing brake fluid high performance racing great for it. I, I, I'm not in my race car, but I used to use it in the, in the 147 as well. And, uh, you know, it was fine on the road, but it does mean that, you know, under heavy braking, when you're competing, you know, you've got a bit more, um, a bit more performance. So yeah, decent brake fluid, decent brake pads. Would you change the brake fluid every, every event or a couple of times oh, a year? No, no, or? no, no, no. Oh, no, well, once, once a year, right. Once a year. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. I mean, these, these racing brake fluids are designed for much higher temperatures then you're ever going to put through them competing in a road car as a hill climb or a sprint. So, you know, they, even if you, you know, you're never going to get, boil them to a point where they lose their performance. So, uh, so no, I mean, I used to, after that rather dodgy trip back from <laughs> South Wales, we started using the Motel RBF 600 brake fluid uh, in the 147 and that was perfect. And we changed it probably not even once a year, might've been once every two years, if I remember rightly, but Certainly not more than once a year. And I even use that now in my 156 GTA modified car as well. It's a great brake fluid and it was fine on the road as well. So yeah, so something like that is, is, is wise to do. But again, to be honest, for your first event or two, I wouldn't even worry about that too much because, you know, uh, it's unlikely you're going to be hammering it so hard <laughs> yeah. that, um, that, you know, you're going to be, that's going to be a, a major issue for you, to be honest. But certainly if you, if you decide you want to, you know, you enjoy the sport and you want to carry on with it, then yeah, getting decent brake fluid, decent brake pads in is a good, good place to start in terms of, you know, modifying and developing the car a little bit, but within the regulations. And we talked about, 
about uh, the cost of your license and, and affiliation to a club. What, what's the cost of a of a typical uh, event? It varies. Um, you probably average about a hundred pounds an event for an entry fee. It varies a lot. It, it really depends almost on the popularity of the event. Some of the more popular venues, like your Shelsley Walsh Hill Climb venue and Prescott and places like that, do charge more. They're nearer the sort of 150, 160, whereas some of the sprints tend to be more sort of 70, 80. I think it depends a lot probably on what the organizers think a they you know is reasonable to charge given the popularity event and also the, their own infrastructure costs associated with running an event at a particular venue and obviously in cases where they've got to hire the venue so you know a sprint at somewhere like Kerbera is going to be a lot less than a sprint at say Castle Coombe because it's going to be less for the organizing club to hire Kerbera for the day than it is to hire Castle Coombe for the day so yeah any, anywhere between probably the lowest I've had in the last year or two is probably about 75, 80 pounds the highest I think is probably 150, 160 so probably an average of 100, 110 something like that for, for a so, one day so event. if you're going to do 10 or 12 events a year you're probably looking at a couple of grand in the first year with your race suit and your helmet, yeah. and then more like fifteen hundred a year from then onwards. Yeah, I mean, in terms of entry fees, if you, yeah, you're probably for, if you're going to do ten events, you're probably in for a thousand pounds worth of entry fees a year. And yeah, you need your race suit and helmet. But to be honest, with if you, again, what I would just say to people if they're interested in having a go, I mean, you can always borrow a race suit and helmet off somebody for the first event or two. You know, if you know somebody who's you know participating in the sport, then. You know, just ask them if they can borrow if you can borrow their helmet, race suit, and gloves for an event before you decide whether to to, to you know to, to buy them yourself. I mean, yeah, because you're probably talking five hundred quid in total for an overalls, gloves, and helmet. Because obviously they'd have to be the Motorsport UK uh, approved ones. Yeah, they're not that expensive. You can spend thousands if you want to, like the top level race drivers do. But you know, I think my overalls cost about two hundred quid, and my helmet was about one hundred and fifty, something like that. So um, yeah, but you can, as I say, you can always borrow them. You, you talked about single seaters and how they disrupt your um, your running. <laughs> the hill climbs. If if you were going to make a concerted effort at the outright alpha record, have you ever thought about having a go in a single seater? I mean, there's, there's the um, the seventeen fifty TBI engine in the the W series and British Formula Three now. I yeah. think from uh, from next year, Formula Four. I'd love to um, if the opportunity came about. I mean, I've driven single seaters and you know enjoy driving single seaters. So yeah, absolutely. If there was a, a single seater going with an Alpha engine in that uh, <laughs> someone wanted to lend me to to, to drive up Chelsea Walsh or anywhere for that matter, then I'd be delighted to do it. In terms of uh, doing it myself, it's probably you know given the fact I spend all my money on my current competition Alpha, I'm not sure I would be spending one on another one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't rule it out completely for something I might do in the future. But if anybody listening has got a <laughs> A single seater with an Alpha engine and would like somebody to tear it up a hill climb for them, then give me a shout. I'd be delighted to. Assuming I fit in it, I am <laughs> six foot two. So um, yeah. uh, I do so, sometimes struggle to fit in single seaters, but I, I, I can crowbar, crowbar myself in. Brilliant. That's been fantastic. Thank you for, for taking the time this afternoon. Been been an absolute pleasure. It's been great talking to you guys. Thanks very much indeed. That's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time when I'll be talking to Ashley Croft about buying his first Alpha. Many of you may have already spoken to Ashley as he's part of the team which looks after members at the club's official insurer, Chris Knott. Episode 48 will be available to download from 1.30pm on Sunday the 2nd of January from Podbean, iTunes, YouTube and all the usual places. In the meantime, I'd like to take the opportunity to wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And until the next time, stay safe. <laughs>